John chapter 2. So we have been walking through the Gospel of John um, as, a, as a body, and we uh, took about 10 weeks to walk through uh, chapter 1, just so many things and, and that. And so we will step into uh, John chapter 2 this morning. There are a number of different ways to look at how John has put together uh, this Gospel. I want to give you another perspective as we begin this morning. Uh, John 1 all the way to John chapter 12, those 12 chapters there, John sets forth for us um, a number of the signs that Jesus did that affirmed and communicated that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Son of God who has come to redeem the nation. Um, So John 1 through 12, emphasis great on the signs. And then John 13 all the way to the end of chapter 21, John sets forth for us the glory of Jesus. So John 13 to 17, Jesus is in one place, one setting, one night where he establishes what we know as the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He communicates, he prays, and so uh, then after that he goes to Gethsemane, he's arrested, then he's crucified, then he's resurrected, and then he meets the disciples uh, on the shore in John chapter 21 and has this great restoration of Peter. And so, so John kind of establishes these 21 chapters in that way. 1 through 12, the signs that affirm who, who Christ is as God. And then 13 through 21, establishing the reality of, of who Christ is in regard to um, his glory. So today, we're going to look at the first miracle um, that Jesus uh, did um, John calls it something different. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use a Greek word um, that indicates the word, in, in our English word, miracle, and it speaks about the power, and they give great emphasis on just the event. John uses a different Greek word as he talks about these miracles. It's a Greek word that's translated into English called sign. And so a sign is a miracle. A miracle is a miracle where you just look at the miracle. A sign is a miracle that points beyond the miracle to something greater. It points to the one who did the miracle. So all of these signs in in John's gospel that are miracles point beyond just the event. It points to the one who actually did it. And so so there's this affirmation of who Christ is as as the Messiah and as God. And so we'll see that today uh, in John chapter 2. Now, we will, uh, moving forward, encounter five particular strong signs that Jesus did in John's gospel. And as with everything, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that is written in the Old Testament. And so some people look at the Old Testament and say, um, it's, not, it's a story of this Old Testament God. He seems to be angry a lot. Um, the New Testament's the story of this New Testament God. His name is Jesus. Well, the reality of the situation is, is the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It is a foreshadowing and a preparation for who Christ would come. And so all of the, the ceremonial laws and a number of different things that are connected with the Old Testament is they were shadows or they were uh, preparation um, things to get everybody ready for the fulfillment of those. And so one of those we will see today um, that Jesus is greater than everything. And that's the ultimate reality of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Old Testament, there could be nothing permanent done. There was no permanent forgiveness of sins. And so year after year, daily, they did these sacrifices, they did these rituals, and they did these things, and it never brought about anything 
permanent. And the purpose of that was to bring everybody to be ready when the unveiling of the Messiah would come, we would be able to see the reality um, when Jesus came in the flesh is that he's the fulfillment of all of that, that everything ends with him and he is to become the very center of our lives. And so John chapter 1 John has established for us that Jesus is greater than all of the prophets. That includes the last one, John the Baptist. Uh, John chapter 2 today, we will see Jesus goes to a wedding. Um, He is greater than a marriage. He's greater than a wedding. Um, We will see next week, uh, contrasting this, Jesus goes to the temple, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the temple that's not going good. Um, So we will see a tender side of Jesus today at a wedding. Next week, we'll see the fiery side of Jesus as he steps into the temple, and they are... um, not doing things that he is he is happy about and so we will see that next week and but he's greater than the temple so we'll see that aspect next week we will see in john chapter 3 he encounters a guy named nicodemus who is a rabbi and we will see that jesus is the greater one than the rabbi and then john chapter 4 is this beautiful story where he meets this woman um, who's been married a bunch of times and now she's living with a guy who's not even her husband she comes in the afternoon to a jacob's well well-established all the way back in the Old Testament. Jacob dug this well. The Jews, all the way thousands of years later, were still drinking from it. And Jesus will share with this woman there, and he will communicate to her, I'm greater than the well. This well can only satisfy your physical thirst, but I'm the one who can give you a thirst that can be satisfied, that will last for all of eternity as here. And so John is establishing, we'll see that today, that these symbols connected in the Old Testament, that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of all of these. Now, with all of these Old Testament or these signs that Jesus does, there's a fourfold pattern with all of them, and here's what happens. So there is, there is something that has been established um, in the Old Testament, or it's an event, or it's a place, and Jesus shows up to it. When he shows up to it, he does something there, either teaches or he does a miracle or something, and he shows that I'm greater than this thing. I'm the one who's greater than this. I'm the fulfillment of this. Thirdly, um, when he does this, uh, there is this, in, in some ways, this, uh, this affirmation that he's brought something so new, so powerful, so satisfying, that it should well up faith. But what happens, this fourth aspect, is that people see what he did, and they have two responses. One is they believe in him because of what they see. And the second response is they're more confused and they don't believe and they reject him. So let's look at the text, John chapter 2, and let's read it all the way down to verse 12. This is so, I love the story uh, that we're going to look at today and in, in, in the principles that we will see about who Christ is. All right, John 2 verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some of it and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, 
than the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And so if you're not here familiar with LifePoint or familiar with us, I'm about to say something, and you're going to get worried. You're like, okay, we're going to get home today. So i got eight things to say out of this, okay? And I promise that it's not going to take too long, but there are eight just phenomenal things that we must see today. And the first one is simply this, is I want us to see this morning what, what happens when Jesus comes into the common moments of our lives. So a wedding. Everybody's gone to a wedding. Most of us have been married. These are common events in our lives. And I love this reality about Jesus. And now I want, you to, I want you to see this today because I think far too often, even in the church and, and especially in our world, is that people look at Jesus and go, gosh, maybe it's because of the denomination they grew up in or a church. And they think, man, that church stuff, that Jesus stuff, boring. There is nothing fun about that. No, you know, there's not a lot of joy, not a lot of excitement and stuff. And I, I want you to know this, that you read the four Gospels and people always... We're inviting Jesus to come to places that they lived. They, they, they didn't see him as, oh man, when that guy, Jesus, comes, he's so stuffy. You know, they didn't wear ties back then, but he, he would have worn a tie and a, and a big old jacket, and he'd have, just, he'd have dressed the part. Boring, he's just serious all the time. Here's the reality, that is not true about Jesus. That's why people were saying, hey, can I spend time with you? Hey, can we talk? And Jesus would say, you bet. I'll come to your house, Zacchaeus. Hey, Matthew, I'll come. Hey, woman at the well who's had, who's had so many husbands, now living outside of marriage. Hey, I'll talk to you. Hey, hey, I, I will touch you, leper. And so all through the New Testament, we see this, this picture in the four Gospels that Jesus wasn't this boring guy. When Jesus showed up, sometimes there was fire that came. But most of the time when Jesus came, he brought the presence of God. And when the presence of God was there, there was joy for people to experience. And I love this story for this reason. Jesus shows up at a wedding. Guess what? He had friends. And one day somebody said, hey, Jesus, will you come to my wedding? And we come be a part of the celebration that we're going to do. And so Jesus, with his mom, with his disciples, Probably some of his brothers as well, they show up at this wedding. Now, let me just make a few statements about weddings. Here in America, we basically have, you know, we give weddings about eight hours or so. You know, we got the Friday night rehearsal or rehearsal, and then the next day you got the ceremony. And I know there's lots of hours that, of preparation and all that kind of stuff. But, but for the most part, we give about two days or parts of two days for it. Boy, you go back 2,000 years ago. They, they, they celebrated weddings, seven days, seven days. Now, if you were a virgin, you were getting married, you got married on a Wednesday. And so what happened was that there, were, there, there would be this, uh, this ceremony that would take place and you would give your vows. And after you gave your vows, you would go and you would sit in this, this, uh, this seated thing that had poles on it and they would have a canopy over it and they would pick you up and the, the husband and the wife, they would be sitting in this and they would march you around the village and everybody would come out to the streets and everybody would ex- be excited because everybody back then knew one another and they would celebrate that. And instead of going on a honeymoon, which we do, which I think I like, 
what we do better, but this is what they did back then. After you were marched around the city, you went home, and for seven days, you opened up your house for everybody to come and see you at your house. There was no honeymoon. There was no trip. There was no cruise. There was no any of that stuff. And so this is what happened. And so Jesus shows up at this wedding in the midst of all of this stuff. Now, back in the day, one of the things that was a, a big part of uh, the Jewish celebration of marriage was wine. Now, it was very shameful in the Jewish culture to be drunk. And so when, so when we talk about that there was wine that was there, this was not a thing where everybody was partying and everybody was sloshed and falling down and all that kind of stuff. That's not what it was, but it was a natural part of their celebration of, of marriage. And so here we find Jesus coming uh, in that very setting, this common moment of a wedding um, and he just steps into it. Now, I want to I say something here before we move on. There is not an area of our lives, from our family to our work. I play the greatest game that's ever been invented. It's called disc golf, and it's amazing. And uh, if you've never played it, you have no idea what you are missing. And so there's not a moment of our life, parenting, golf, disc golf, coming to church, running, exercising, doing accounting, whatever it is that we do. There's not a moment of our lives where Jesus can't step into those common moments of our lives, everyday things, and do something amazing because that's who he is. And so here Jesus shows up at a wedding, and it's pretty amazing, but then a crisis hits that we just read. So let's look at the next thing. So here's Jesus, first thing, verses 1 and 2. He comes in the common moments of our lives. He comes to a wedding. Well, something happens in verse 3. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. What was supposed to be a joyous occasion, everybody's celebrating, it became a moment of panic. Because you got seven days, maybe they're three days in, maybe they're four days in, and they're going, Oh my goodness, we got three or four more days left, and it's gone. And so, so when Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, the wine's ran out and lets him know about that, she's not asking for the credit card to go down somewhere to buy some stuff. I mean, th- this is a crisis. They've got three or four more days of people coming by, and there's nothing to provide. And the, and the Jewish culture is a very shameful culture. And so if this were to happen to you for this bride and this groom, and particularly for the groom, for the rest of his life in this community, people would go, hey, you remember that guy's wedding? He didn't even plan enough to have enough wine at all the wedding. And it would be shameful for him. And for the rest of his life, people would remember back to that moment. And so this happens. I mean, it's gone. What are they going to do? Man's resources can't fix this. There's nowhere to go to get enough to fix this issue. And a family back in those days could actually be fined for this. They, would, they, they, could, they could charge you money for not taking care of business at the wedding. Well, what brought about the shortage? We have literally no idea what what brought about it we just know that there's a shortage that's there likely jesus's mom mary had a role in the wedding maybe the family maybe this was maybe a, a relative of theirs a distant relative and and mary seems to be connected at the wedding and possibly uh, connected with the role of taking care of um, the wine and so we see that and kind of get a sense of that in verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 5 of the text that she was uh, connected with that. But let's ask this question. What is she asking Jesus when she comes? And she says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. Why is she telling him this? Well, we know, look at verse 11 for a second in chapter 2. This, the first of his signs. Is that first? What does first mean? I know this is a stupid question. It means first, right? Does it mean fifth? Does it mean it's twelfth? No, it doesn't. It means it's first. So listen to this. There's, there's extra biblical accounts that talk about that Jesus did all of these miracles. Um, they're not contained in the Bible. John here is telling us this is the first miracle Jesus did. So there's one story outside of the Bible that said when he was a kid, there was a dead bird that was there, and, and he breathed life into the bird, and it came alive. Now, I don't, we, don't, we don't know anything about that. I just know this. John knew Jesus, and he was an apostle, and he said, this is Jesus' first miracles. And so what I'd like to say to us, since John knew him, uh, let's trust John's account about this, that this is actually his first miracle. So when the wine ran out, Mother Jesus said, they have no wine, and Mary is coming. And she says, hey, I'm letting you know about this. You know why she's letting him know about this? She's wanting him to use his power to do something about the situation. And she's basically kind of coming up and saying, hey, can you do something about this? We can't go and fix this. The family's going to have a problem. This is going to be shameful. Can you do something about this? Without a miracle, there was going to be no solution to the problem at hand on that day. It was going to require God to do something in the midst of that. But let me ask this question, though, and pose it to us this morning. In these moments of our lives, and do they not arise, do moments arise that were not expected? Maybe we've planned, and we, maybe we thought we've planned enough, but more people come or something else happens, uh, whatever the case may be, and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a crisis at hand, and we're at that moment going, what can we do? And there's not really anything humanly possible to do in the moment, and that's, this is where they are. But does Jesus care about those moments? Does he care about those moments, or is he like, oh, my gosh, y'all, come on, didn't you, what, you should have planned better. Did you not plan better? I'm not, I got bigger things to think of. I mean, I'm managing the world. Have you seen the world? It's just crazy. I'm not interested in your little wine crisis at your wedding. Well, I want to say this to you. He absolutely is interested in the wine crisis. He's absolutely interested in marriages where there's instability that's there. He is absolutely interested when we have no money in the bank account. We got a lot of things we got to pay still, and we don't know what to do. I want you to know there's not a moment of our lives, there's not an aspect of our lives that Jesus is not interested in that. And so the crisis comes. I think Mary knows that her son is very deeply compassionate, and she comes to him, and she makes him aware of it. And and I just want to remind you and I, he is always in touch with the crisis of our lives, always. There's never a moment that he's not. Now, let me say a few things about Mary. Mary doesn't talk a whole lot in the Bible. As a matter of fact, these words that we just read here in verse 5, these are the last words she ever says in the Bible. I, think, well, I don't even know if it's verse 5, verse 4, or verse 3. Um, these are the last words that she says in the Bible, but she says some pretty significant things. Let me remind us of some of the things that she said. In Luke 134, uh, Gabriel comes and tells her, hey, listen, uh, you're going to be pregnant with the Messiah. Um, uh, if you were a teenager, that would be a shocking moment to, for an angel to show up and tell you this. And so she says these words. She says, how can this be? How can this be? In Luke one thirty eight, um, after Gabriel shares for more things with her, she says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Beautiful words that Mary says. In Luke one forty six. Through 55, this reality of this comes, and it's called Mary's Magnificat. She just worships, and she says some of the, this is just an example of what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In Luke chapter 2, verse 48 and following, she speaks again. 
There were some very irresponsible parents in the first century named Joseph and Mary. They went to the Passover one day, and they were on their way home. They were a day and a half away from Jerusalem when they realized they'd left their 12-year-old son back in the big city. And they're like, where is he? Where is he? So they have to travel all the way back, and they get into him. They find Jesus in the temple. He's sitting around talking with all the religious leaders. And the people are listening to him talk and ask questions, and they're astounded. And it says in Luke 2, 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And this 12-year-old says this to his mom, Why have you been looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be and I must be in my father's house? And the text says that they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them, and the very last time she ever speaks is here in John 2, where she says in a moment, whatever he says, I want you to do it. So she comes here in verse 3, and she says, hey, I want you to know what's happening and what's going on. Here's the second principle we've got to see from Mary this morning. In every moment of our life that comes up, turn to Jesus and leave everything with him. Just leave everything with him. She comes and she says, Jesus, we don't have any wine. And she just basically hands this over and just says, hey, I'm just going to leave this with you because we can't, we, all of us over here, we, we people, we can't do anything about it, but you can. And so I just want to make you aware of this and I want to leave this with you. And I think the counsel of Mary this morning is to remind you and I in every area of our life, dating, marriage, work integrity, um, leisure, whatever we do, just leave matters with Jesus. Put them in his hands because it's the safest place to do that well look at verse 4 and we've got to deal with this one Jesus came to bear sin not to grant wishes and so I want to talk about um, this reality for a moment but I want to say this God tells us come to me and pray make your request known to me and God moves he hears our prayers and he moves and he steps in and he does things now he doesn't answer he, he answers every prayer just has different answers but here's a, a big one And so Mary comes and says, hey, there's no more wine left. And so look at verse 4. So Jesus speaks to her and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, for most of church history, this phrase that Jesus speaks here has been understood as somewhat of a rebuke by Jesus to her. And I do believe there is a slight um, uh, rebuke of her of saying, hey, hey, I'm not here just to... When you come to me as my mom, when you ask me to do something, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not going to do it immediately. That's not how, how this works. And so there's a little bit of it. But also, when you go back in the day, this is really important. So, so we've, got, we've got four Crosby kids on this section right here. I want to encourage the four Crosby kids to never call your mother, hey, woman, here's the deal, okay? I'm, I'm encouraging you not to do that with any of your mothers. And so when we read this, we're like, gosh, Jesus, man, kind of rude. Well, if you go back 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture, this was a common phrase, and depending on the tone in which it was said, it would either be a mild rebuke or it would be, calm down, I've got this. There's nothing, nothing to worry about. And so I think... In some ways, um, based on what Jesus says, my hour's not come. It's a little bit of a mild rebuke, but I think it was also of just saying to her, okay, this is not the worst thing in the world. 
Sometimes these moments feel like it's the worst thing in the world, right? In our lives, we're like, okay, what are we going to do about this um, situation? And so Jesus speaks to her and just says, woman, um, what does this have to do with me? And so I want to deal with this just for a moment, because I think it's important to see this. Jesus uses this phrase, and he says, my hour has not yet come. So what, what, is, he, what is he saying here? Well, there was a time when for most of Jesus' life, he's just been a carpenter living under Mary's roof. He's, he's been in Jerusalem. He's not married, so he hasn't left her house and built his house because um, Jesus never got married in spite of what you hear uh, in our culture as well. That is not true. That is not something that happened. And so he's been living under Mary's roof. He's been a carpenter, most likely Joseph. Um, his earthly father, not his biological father, um, is probably dead now. And so, uh, because he just doesn't seem to be around outside of the Christmas story. Um, and so, Jesus and his brothers have been taking care of Mary. He's been living under the roof. And he, he's kind of telling her, hey, listen, Mom, things are going to be different between us. Because, listen, there's an hour in which I came. There's a purpose in which I came. And it's not just to grant everybody's wish when something happens. But I have come for something really, really important. Let me just give you some examples. So he says here, my hour has not yet come. In John 4, 21, Jesus said to the woman at the well, believe me, the hour is coming. John 4, 23, Jesus says again to her, the hour is coming. John 5, 25, I say to you, an hour is coming. John 5, 28, behold, an hour is coming. John 7, 6, my time has not yet come. John 7, 8, for my time has not yet come fully come John seven thirty. so they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come John eight twenty. these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come you remember when he was in Nazareth and he said today this has been fulfilled in your hearing and they want to throw him over the cliff because he's saying I'm the son of God I'm the fulfillment of this text and he just moves through them how does that happen well his hour had not yet come but his hour was coming, and Jesus began to speak about that in John 12. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, John sixteen twelve in the upper room, Jesus said, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me so the reality for jesus as mary comes and says son we 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 got a major problem at a hand we've got three days left of this wedding and there's no more wine and jesus says to her woman what does this have to do with me my time has not yet come and here's what jesus is saying i'm not going to do this just because you're my mom and i love you and i respect you you're my mom but i'm not doing this um, because you asked me to i am only going to do what my father tells me to do we know from John that Jesus said what he said because he heard the Father say it. He did what he did because he saw the Father do it. And so he's telling her, I'm not doing this just because you're asking me. We've got a mother-son relationship. Uh, I'm not going to do this because that would step beyond what God has purposed for me. But also at the same time, Jesus is telling her, listen, my hour has not yet come, but I want you to know this. I'm thinking about my hour. It's not come. What's he thinking about? The cross. So he's telling her, listen, already early on in his ministry, Mary's just consumed with what do we do in this, this night, this Wednesday night of the wedding, 
What do we do? What are we going to do? And Jesus tells her, listen, I'm thinking about something else. I get it that this is a big deal, but I want you to know my thoughts are, are down the road that I'm going to the cross. And so I just want to remind you and I that God answers our prayer, but he's not here just to bear all of our wishes and answer all of our wishes. He has come to rescue us from the biggest problem that we have, and it's not on a Wednesday night. It's sin. Sin has separated us, and we need him to come. So this is where Jesus' focus is already. It is centered on the reality that he is going to the cross. And so the hour, he says, has not yet come, but it is coming. But notice what he does here. He, he, he denies Mary's request, in a sense, to do something publicly, but then he's going to do it on his own, quietly, behind the scenes, to not draw attention to himself. That was always kind of the way um, of Jesus uh, to do things. Look at verse 5 with me. So Jesus, in verse 4, look at verse 4. Let's put, the, put this together. So Jesus said to her, woman, lady, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let me stop here for a moment because I didn't say this. Those of us who are adults and your mom, if your mom is still alive or if your mom um, was alive when you became a, an adult, moms push. You have a mom that pushes a little bit? Not, not, not bad meaning, but moms just push. And so when, Jesus, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, uh, there's no wine, she's kind of saying, hey, listen, I know you've been baptized. I know the Spirit has come upon you and you're about to start your public ministry. Why don't we right now, there's not a better place than right now, why don't you just do a miracle and, and do some wine stuff and everybody here will know and it'll be so awesome. Let's just do this big kind of public thing. So she's kind of pushing. I'm 54 years old. My mother's still alive. I have lived overseas, learned to speak another language, learned to preach in another language, and my mom still tells me how to travel and live overseas. And so moms just do this, don't they? They just kind of do this. Moms just kind of push. And so every one of us, it's just the reality of that. And the reason is, is moms are always what? They're moms. They're just moms. What'd you say over there, Mark? Anyway, anyway yeah. okay, he's like, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Anyway, all right. <clears throat> so look, look at verse 5 now. So there was something about, I, I don't see it, but look at verse 4 again. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. I don't see any hope that he's going to do anything. <laughs> but Mary somehow hears hope. And so in verse 5, she turns to the servants, <laughs> just like a mom as well, turns to the servants and says, hey, if he tells you something, do it. Whatever he tells you, do it. There's some kind of hope that she read there. And this is what I want to say in, in the point in verse 5 is simply this. Fully trust Jesus in everything. Fully trust Jesus, or point four, fully trust Jesus in everything. See, here's Mary's perspective. If he tells you to do something, boy, do it, because he doesn't speak idle words. And so if he's going to tell you, do something about this, whatever it is, do it. And so here's Mary. She doesn't know if Jesus is going to do anything or not, but she fully trusts that if he does say something, hey, guys, do what he says. And so though she doesn't, and I think this is the beauty of her trust here, and so she turns to the servants and says, hey, if he says something, you do it. And so though she doesn't see it, she trusts anyway that, 
that, and this, I think this is the beauty sometimes of our faith is simply this, is that we are to trust even when we don't understand. Even when we cannot see that there's a solution coming, we trust in the moment knowing that He does have the power to step in if He wants to, to do something. And I think joyous is the life that trusts Christ even when we don't understand and we cannot see the solution. And I think Mary, because I, I, I tell you, I've read it all week. I've read verse 4, and I just don't see any hope in that woman. My time has not come. I read that as, okay, no, I'm not really going to do this. And I think what he probably was saying is, I'm not doing it the way you want this done. I'm not, not going to make a big deal about this. And so she somehow says, listen, if he does speak, you do this. And so I just want to remind you and I today, according to verse 5, and if Mary could stand up here before us, um, you know, you know what Mary would say to us today? And some of us have a Catholic background. Some of you may be here and you are connected to Catholicism. And, and Mary never made a big deal about herself. And I think she would be appalled that she's worshipped. I think that she would be appalled that um, some of that doctrine in Catholicism says that Mary, Mary helps Jesus redeem us. You know what Mary would say? I had to place my faith and trust in my son as well. I had to trust in his death. I had to trust in this reality. And she knows here she has no power. And that's why she goes to her son who has the power to be able to do something. And so Mary would say, you trust Jesus in everything. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons and I want to make this point here is there's an imperfection this is one of those underlying things that John is showing hey the Old Testament couldn't bring anything permanent it couldn't really it, it was important it was God's word but it couldn't it couldn't ultimately redeem us it couldn't it couldn't it couldn't bring about a fulfillment of everything and so you've got these these pots and they were big 20 to 30 gallons of water could be held in those and they were John says here that they were for the Jewish rites of purification. They were for the washing of feet and the washing of hands. And so they are representative, watch this, of the ceremonial law. And guess what? They're empty. How many of them are there? Not complicated, what is it? Six. What's the number of perfection? Seven. What's the number of man imperfection? Six. Don't miss this. Six. Pots connected to the Old Testament ceremonial rites, and they are empty. And it's an indication, symbolism underneath, that they couldn't bring about purification, but there was one there at the wedding who could. Because when his hour came, he would go to the cross and he would die, and it would pay for our sins so that you and I could become in a right relationship with him. So the Jews were adamant about washing. So they would hold their hands up like this, they would pour water, let it run down to their hand right here, and then they would do this. They would pour water here, let it run down to their fingertips, and they did that before the meal. In between every course of the meal, they would do this, and they would do all of these things thinking, I'm, I'm purified because I'm washing. And no. You can take a bath today. Hopefully, you will, or hopefully you did. But water can't cleanse the heart. You see, only God can cleanse the heart. And so here they are, this representation of the Old Testament, and they're empty, 
And it's not that the Old Testament did not have power and it wasn't authoritative, because it is. It's God's word. But they all reached their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And one of life's greatest aims is for you and I to trust Jesus immediately, entirely, exclusively in whatever he says, and specifically when he says to do something. Now look at verse 7. So Jesus turns to the servants and says, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now we've got a, we're going to baptize in a moment. We've got a baptistry over here, our horse trough, cattle trough that we baptize in. It's got it right over here this morning. So last night, we got back from the winter retreat. Mark grabbed the hose. He stuck it in there. I went to the back of the building. I turned this thing, and water started flowing. Did y'all know that? You can put a hose on. You can turn this thing, and water flows through it. Now, you go back 2,000 years ago when Jesus turns to the servants. Hey, go find 180 gallons of water. There was no hose to be found. So these guys had lugged these heavy jars. They had to go find water someplace and to bring it back, but they filled them up, and I did a little research this week. It says they were either 20 or 30, which means probably some of them were 20-gallon, some of them were 30-gallon, so upwards to 180 gallons, somewhere probably of 150 gallons of water and 180 gallons of water they went and found. If everybody got one serving each that was in there, 2,400 people could get a cup of what they went and did. And here's what I want to say to us this morning. Y'all remember back in John 1 where it says this, for from his fullness, we believers have all received grace upon what? Grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace replacing grace. You see, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he exercises his grace in the midst of his people, there is enough and to spare for all. There weren't 2,400 people living in Cana. What he did that day was so over and above, and that's what God does in our lives. And if you're here today and, and you're angry at God or, you, or some, something's come and you're wrestling with God, I just want you to know this. In our lives, on this side of heaven, trouble is going to be here. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but I want you to know this. I want you to take heart. Don't, don't, don't let your heart sink. I want you to know this. Trouble is going to be a part of life here because it's full of sin and, and there's, just, there's just yucky stuff that comes here. But I want you to know this. I want you to take heart. I have overcome the world. And so I'm the one who can bring the satisfaction in the midst of the stuff that's going on in your life. And if you will just release that and trust me, then Christ's grace can come into our lives and do this unbelievable work. Look at, look at verse 8. So Jesus said to this guy, or um, he, he says, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. This word, master of the feast, is like a head waiter who would bring you in and would sit you down and make sure, hey, do you need anything else? Do you need a refill? Is there anything going on? And so the headmaster would come, and he would go around and make sure everything is okay. And so, so Jesus says, hey, take a cup, gets a cup, goes over to the headmaster. The headmaster drinks it, and his eyes are like this, and his eyes go like this. This to this. And he walks up to the groom, and he says, hey, dude, I've been doing this a long time. It's my job. I have never been to a wedding. I've never worked at a wedding. I have never done anything like this ever where people save the best wine to the very end. What's up with you? Nobody's ever done this. 
And watch this, what just minutes before would have been the most shameful moment of the groom's life now becomes one of the most glorious moments where Jesus stepped in and he graced the groom with his work. And I think about our lives, I think about my life, I'll just talk about me because I know me best. I don't, I don't know you better than me, I know me better than you. And I know that, boy, I can cause some real problems in my own life. I don't have it together all the time. There are moments and I don't feel it. I'm not overly motivated. Do you know this? I wake up sometimes and I don't really want to read my Bible. Yeah, but, but you're a pastor, yeah? Yeah, I am. <laughs> in those days I read my Bible, but I wrestle with it. I don't get anything out of it. It's just a struggle. And so I'm, I'm in this with you. It's a, it's a wrestling sometimes of the reality of our life. But I just I want us to know this, that I know this to be true. That, that even in the moments when I don't feel it, even in the moments where it's a struggle, even the moments where I don't understand, I know this, that from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace and that when He moves, He does something that's far beyond what any of us could ever do, we could ever compute, and this is what happens here. There is a beauty of what happens here. And so, so the guy tastes it and he's like, wow, groom. And he brings, and what could have been so shameful for the groom now becomes this glorious moment where he is affirmed and the groom watch this had nothing to do with what happened he didn't have anything to do with it and he's he's get he's being affirmed and, and is that not what christ does in our lives we're just in and of ourselves we would just be a wreck without christ and yet through the cross he died when his hour came and now those who are enemies of god who had hostile minds now are in a relationship with god and he's just flipped it we were an enemy now we're a child We used to live in darkness. Now we live in light. We used to be dead. Now we're alive. And when His grace comes, He does this unbelievable, unbelievable thing. And I love the humility of Jesus. He didn't get a magic wand and go abracadabra over all the water jars. He didn't say, hey, hey, everybody, gather around, gather around, and walk up and put His hands on the the jars and just pray some awesome prayer and, and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't say he prayed. It doesn't say he spoke. He said, hey, guys, fill up the jars. Dip a cup in. They dip it. Go give it to the master of the feast. Wow. And this is what God does in our lives. He's the kind of God who takes wretched people and he restores them. And he steps into this wedding And what could have been awful became this joyous, joyous moment. Verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Right there in the city of Cana, in a home, at a wedding, among his mom, among his friends, among his disciples, Jesus brought, watch this, joy. You know what I think is one of the missing things in Christianity today? Joy. I think it's missing this, this aspect of joy. I know sometimes it's missing from my life, but I want you to see this. Jesus stepped into this wedding and he brought joy. He's not some kill joy. Jesus is not just for Sundays. Jesus is for every moment. He's for every day. And he's so good. His goodness is is unbelievable and it, over, it overshadows our wretchedness if we know Him. 
is His goodness is just incredible. And this, this missing piece, we need to find it. And I think sometimes we're, we're so pursuing joy and happiness, and we think it's going to come down the road. It's going to come down the road. And I want you to hear this today. I know this to be true in my own life. That sometimes in my life I'm thinking, oh, well, happiness and joy, it's going to come down the road. But something, God does something in my, and I look at my circumstances, and maybe they're not so great. But I trust God in the midst of those circumstances and in the midst of what could never be joyful by deeply trusting in Him. You know what I've found in my life? Joy. Joy. Even when it can't compute. So I did a little, I did a little research. Let me just share a little love. So Paul, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and Philemon when he was in a Roman prison cell in Rome, in the city of Rome. 29 times in prison, Paul writes, give thanks, rejoice, be joyful. I don't know about you, I don't want to be in a Roman prison cell today, and I particularly 2,000 years ago do not want to be in one because I've read about them. And 29 times in his prison letters, he tells believers, I'm joyful where I am. See, sometimes in our lives, it's just a matter of perspective. Of, of not like, okay, that's coming down the road. And God's saying, hey, right now, right now, you can know joy in the midst of these circumstances. So let me share this quote and we'll be done. I love Spurgeon. Um, love reading uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote these words about joy. Well, i tell you what, no, I, I have one more thing, sorry. You know, pastors, they're never really done, and so I'm not really done. Hang on, one, one last thing. Who ordained marriage, man or God? God. And I think Jesus did, I think, a big thing because Ephesians 5 says that uh, marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. I thought this week of this, that as Jesus may have, backed away and he's done this miracle and he's watching everybody drink the best wine and everybody it's joyful i wondered if he stood back there that day and in his humanity the tenderness and loving thing of jesus looking at an institution that he had established called marriage and then just as a human jesus because he was human if he smiled that day a smile came across his face seeing the joy that was happening in people's lives because he had stepped in with his grace. And his grace had come, and, and more than the wine tasting, what people are experiencing is what God does when God moves in the midst of people. And it should well up in us joy. And I just wondered this week, did he just that night smile? And maybe giggle a little bit or whatever God might do and just go, I love seeing people touched by my grace and taste what it's like when I do something. This is what Spurgeon said. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls, not levity and frothiness, but a genial, happy spirit. There are more flies caught with honey than vinegar. Think about that for a moment. And there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven in his face than one who bears Tartarus in his looks. And I think today, I just wonder for some of us in the room, is joy the missing piece in our lives?
And is God calling you and I back to remember grace? That God can step into the moments of our lives and do this great work.